U.S. women's soccer, Governor Hogan makes a traffic move, and a shipmate goes home. All this and more on this week's Three Season A Pod. Three Season A Pod, a weekly podcast from Provision Advisors. A look at the good, the bad, and the what could be better in the world of communication. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your host, Bashan Mann, and with me on the show are Chris Cervello and John Schofield. We thank you for joining us this week. For more of the Provision Conversation, follow us on Twitter and give us your thoughts at ProV Advisors. That's P-R-O-V Advisors. Or you can check us out on the web, www.provisionadvisors.net. As always, we look forward to hearing from you. All right, folks, let's jump into today's show with our segment, Rearview Mirror. Uh, for those of you keeping score at home, the U.S. women's soccer team just scored another goal. Uh, gentlemen, who wants to take the first stab at um, the dilemma, the discussion that is U.S. women's soccer beating Thailand? I'll start bashing John, and then uh, we can kind of go around the room. Um, as we talked about last week in our On the Horizon segment, it's uh, Women's World Cup season. That time, every four years, best of the best in women's soccer get together. This year, it's in France. And our women just took it to Thailand uh, the other day, scoring 13 goals. Not completely unprecedented. The last time they, they faced the Thai team, they scored nine goals. But what really has grabbed the attention and I would say a, a bit of finger wagging from media, mostly international media, was um, the fact that the women scored 13 goals and the fact that after each goal, the celebrations continued. They became more ruckus and mm -hmm. uh, more exciting throughout. And so it led questions uh, to be raised about sportsmanship. Let, let's talk a little bit about the, the women's national team brand. Does scoring 13 goals and celebrating after each and every one, including a 13th goal in extra time. So it wasn't just 13 goals. It was they made a concerted effort to get Carly Lloyd a, a goal right. in, in extra time. So does this hurt their brand? Does it hurt their effort for equality? And then we were talking about off air. If this is a men's team, are we even having this conversation? Let me give my my take and then uh, interested in what, what each of you think. I say good, good on them in, in terms of scoring 13 goals. This is it for them. I mean, this is the, you know, the top of the mountain. Uh, the World Cup, whether it's the first round, the second round, or the finals, this team has shown that they go out there and when they're hitting on all cylinders, they, they give it their all and they play hard from the opening whistle to the final whistle. That's a lot of analogies in there, folks. But um, <laughs> So I don't have a problem with them scoring 13 goals. I don't have a problem with them scoring uh, the 13th goal in extra time. I did kind of wonder um, if there should have been some sort of effort by the captains or temper some of the celebration uh, as the game went on. Right. Um, but I don't think it hurts their brand. I certainly don't think it hurts their cause for equality. And in fact, uh, I saw several uh, tweets throughout the weekend um, as our men's national team laid another egg that actually whatever the, uh, the women's team was asking for, they should double or triple it because they're that much better than, than the men. So I don't think it hurts their cause for equality. And I don't, I don't know if this was a men's team, if we would be having uh, the, this discussion. I mean, I think that's a fair critique to say that maybe we are being hard uh, on this team because it's the women's team and that we expect them to be dainty and polite and all the things that are sort of stereotypical, but don't match this team at all. So I think it's worth further discussion. John, you want to jump in first there? 
Yeah, I have no problem with the celebration. I have no problem with 13 goals. Make it 15 goals. Make it 20 goals. Um, I, I'm going to speak from a pure athletic standpoint here that if you're not going into a competition thinking that you've got to put your foot down on the opponent's throat and stomp them out, then you're doing it wrong. Um, and, and, yeah, there, there is always that level of, all right, well, you're taking it from a competition to an embarrassment. But I think Alex Morgan said, after all the uproar, that it would be disrespectful to the Thai women's team if the U.S. Like, took it easy on them. This is a competition that only happens every four years. And, yes, you play a sport like that halfway, then you're going to get hurt, disrespectful to the opponent. It's just not, it's not the way to play the game. And, again, this is the World Cup for a lot of these players – it might be their last World Cup, might be the only time they're ever on this kind of a stage. And when you're an athlete, you better, you better grab that light and, and enjoy it while you can. You know, and I'm, I'm talking right to Kevin Durant right now, um, you know, who is, is, you know, just had an, a, an Achilles injury that he might not come back from. The NBA certainly isn't going to see him for another 12 months. So you never know when, when that light is going to get extinguished. And so when you have the chance to celebrate, when you have the chance to, to swagger a little bit, then swagger. And, and you know what? I'm going to be a little bit inappropriate here, but I, I love the fact that, that the U.S. women's team is that good and there's a little bit of asshole to them. Like, no, we're not only going to beat you, but we're going to beat you down. If the men's team had a little bit of that, just a tiny bit of it, I, I think they'd be better off. And that's the true confounding thing about soccer in this country is why – has the women's team become so utterly dumb and the men's team can't catch up. We have the same soccer academies here in America. We have the same athletes. We have the same access to, to coaching and, and uh, facilities. Why can't the men's team catch up? So in the end, I think it's unfair criticism. I don't see anyone criticizing Rafa Nadal for just continuing to win the French Open for 12 times. Stop criticizing the women. They don't deserve it. Yeah, I'm going to take a little bit of a different tact. Um, I'm of the I'm of the uh, the camp where you you act like you've been there before. I don't mind the goals. I mean, physical dominance in a sport that's what we're there to see is one team actually beat the other one. I think it was Herm Edwards who said, "You play to win the game." I love that. Love that video. Um, Hello. <laughs> I love it, but. Um, act like you've been there before. Um, I think, like John, you, you as a as a baseball fan, we're all baseball fans. We know if a uh, if a home run hitter shows up a pitcher, watches the ball, he's probably going to get beamed the next time he's up, or there's going to be a there's going to be some sort of altercation. And we sort of accept that as the uh, unwritten baseball rules. Um, I think it was Ladainian Tomlinson. Uh, I know there's others. Uh, um, other people who, once they got into the end zone, all they did was hand the ball. Even Rigo, uh, they had mentioned that, I believe, on Tony Kornheiser yesterday. Just hand the ball to the referee and act like you've been in the end zone before. So um, I, don't, I don't necessarily know what that gets you. You know, Chris, you, you had talked about branding. We're having this discussion. That, you know, we're having it. The discussion is all over the sports news in the past 48 hours, and it's all about the brand, right? Uh, you know, and then you can go with the adage that, uh, all news is good news, but I, I don't know uh, if it is in this case. When when the U.S. Uh, women's team gets back out there, uh, maybe they'll score 10, 15 goals. Who knows how many goals? Because in terms of women's soccer or actually soccer rules, 
uh, goal differential does make a uh, make a difference. Um, so like I said, I don't mind them scoring the goals. Just act like you've been there before. There's a way in which to handle yourself um, uh, in the sports arena. And that's my take on that. I think from a brand standpoint, though, you're both right. Their brand is a, a bit of cockiness and, and a bit of brashness. And I think they this is how they act. They have been there before. They are the returning champs. And for them, you know, to to continue to celebrate, to continue to embrace each other and, uh, you know, re really kind of give off that, as John said, asshole-like attitude is a little bit of them. You know, while a pitcher's not going to throw at them in the next game, I, I think there are teams that have taken note. Um, and there are teams that are going to, I think, play them very tough. You know, when they get to Sweden and if, if they make the next round, there are going to be people that I, I think will will play them tough. And we'll just have to see, does their brand hold solid throughout the entire uh, tournament? Bring it on. And, and I think that they would relish that. But you're right. It, it's starting to catch on. There's a story this morning about how Megan Rapinoe doesn't sing the national anthem, um, how she just kind of sits there stone-faced. So it's... It's catching on, and I, I love the edge. I love the edge that they have. It's getting them in the conversation. It's getting them headlines. And I love the fact that we're televising it, not on, like, Fox Sports 1, not on some BS soccer channel. It's on regular Fox. It's getting, it's getting big-time coverage. It's getting big-time conversation, and they deserve it. Well, we'll all stay tuned for the next game and, uh, and watch very closely. Gentlemen, if you've lived in the DMV uh, for, I don't know, look, the, the last five, ten years or more, you've noticed a decline in our uh, public transportation operations. The metro here is, uh, is, is less than, than admirable. Uh, and Governor Hogan this week unleashed a new traffic plan. And, John, I think you're going to give us a little bit of insight uh, into your thoughts on it. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, so interesting case study for communicators. Uh, the traffic relief plan for those uh, who don't necessarily know, is, is a very audacious, uh, between 9 and $11 billion um, effort to, to solve what Governor Hogan calls the quote-unquote soul-crushing traffic in the, the D.C. area. Um, mm -hmm. This involves I-495 from the American Legion Bridge, which is right there at the Virginia border on the western side, all the way to the Woodrow Wilson Bridge, uh, which is on the eastern side of the Beltway. So it will involve that and it will involve 270 from, from where it hits 495 in the Beltway all the way up to 370, which is just south of Frederick, Maryland. So the idea here is that people spend an inordinate amount of time in traffic. And we're not talking about the rush hours. We're talking about all day, every day, Sundays, holidays. You can't go on these roads without just getting smoked by the congestion. And it's getting worse with population growth. Um, it, it, something needs to be done. So in, in my former job with the State Highway Administration, you know, we had this idea for this traffic relief plan, which will add toll lanes or capacity, as we are calling it, uh, to 495 on each, um, on each side of it and on 270 all the way up to 370 or just south of Frederick. The, the issue here is that this has been going for about a year and a half, um, the effort to do this. Uh, they stood up a, a program office. Um, we started uh, soliciting vendors uh, through a public-private partnership or a P3 to bring solutions, to bring ideas. 
And for the entirety of that time, leading up to the newsworthy event of this, which is last week, Governor Hogan brought the finality of this plan to the Board of Public Works, uh, which is the comptroller and the treasurer and the governor voting on all contracts and all efforts of this nature to go forward. And, and it was passed, although they, they had to do a small change in order, to, uh, in order to keep it going forward. But the issue here is that they just lost an entire opportunity for about a year and a half to properly frame this for audiences who need to know how, how transformational this traffic relief plan could be. No one communicated about it. And I'll be, I'm, I'm not trying to throw shade at my former employer, but we would sit there and say, let us go out and talk about what these changes will bring. Let us go out and talk about how we will follow through on the governor's promise that no houses will be taken as part of the expansion or the adding of capacity to this program. And, and it was always coming down from the Department of Transportation's office and their PAO who you know, just didn't have a whole lot of talent at all, telling us, no, wait until the governor gets reelected in November. And once November comes, you can communicate. And then November came, he got reelected. All right, well, let's wait to see what he does in terms of uh, a possible presidential run in the primary. No one could communicate about this. And what happens when you don't communicate? The opponents of a plan fill that space. And so all of the people who wanted no more road expansion, none of this, let's go mass transit, you know, adding to these roads will only hurt this community. It hurts the environment, add more, uh, add more investment to the metro, add more uh, investment to buses and, and other forms of mass transit. They, they came dangerously close to winning the narrative and getting this thing shut down. And why? Because the Hogan administration and the Department of Transportation and the State Highway Administration did not go out and communicate. So it's a lesson for everyone that when you don't fill the space with your narrative, you don't take the initiative and talk about what you think is good for the audience, then someone else is gonna fill it and you're gonna lose. Governor Hogan last week almost lost. The plan's gonna go forward, which I think will be good for the, uh, for the economy of Maryland, uh, for the traffic around Maryland and DC. But um, in my opinion, a, a, a communications failure from the beginning. Let's see how they, let's see how they take it from here. Uh, it, John, you, you, so you mentioned everything that's going on uh, with, with Governor Hogan, his traffic relief plan. Mayor Bowser uh, has had to endure a bit of an equal, uh, if not more blowback for handling the Metro the DC Metro administration has had to deal with fires, station closings, poor service. I, I think it's gotten to a point where people just started to accept the fact that it's a substandard uh, mode of transportation uh, here in the district. There was just an article in the Washington Post, I wish I had it in front of me, that talked about the amount of cars being used uh, in and around the district and that the number is actually increasing. Um, this due in no small part to the fact that Metro right now um, in its rebuild uh, and construction uh, has shut down for much of the summer uh, in several spots. It's an, it's an outdated system, needs many upgrades, um, seriously uh, a safety issue where, where there have been uh, passenger injuries and death uh, in, the, in the past five to seven years. Uh, and, and this area, as it increases in population growth, is really going to need an upgrade uh, in its in its metro system and, and as well as the traffic patterns. So, 
Uh, as someone who resides inside the district, I don't use Metro at all, uh, rarely use Uber. Uh, I am a person who uses my car to get to places. And I've just sort of had to deal with the fact that you have to maneuver your day, maneuver your schedule around high volume traffic times. Uh, and I wish that weren't so, but it's something that we have to deal with. Both of you make strong points, just to kind of zoom out from a communication standpoint. I think if you were to poll most people in the you know, the District, Maryland, and Virginia, they would both agree on the need for some sort of traffic relief, and they would also agree that uh, the metro is in major need of, of an upgrade. I think to John's earlier point, even though that public sentiment is behind you, the mistake that a lot of senior leaders make is to think because they have the public opinion on their side that maybe they don't need to communicate as aggressively or as thoughtfully as they would if the public opinion were split or if it was a contentious issue, right? I mean, I think everybody understands the need for a thoughtful and a deliberate communication strategy when it's a contentious issue. I think we sometimes get lulled into a bit of laziness or that that lack of deliberate and thoughtful communication when we believe that the audience is on our side. So for both of these issues, I think going forward, the leadership in Maryland, the leadership in DC is going to have to make sure that one, they really understand the public sentiment, and two, that they thoughtfully communicate throughout each of the stages of these projects to make sure that they don't lose that public support and that they make sure that their messaging is reaching the audience that they're after. It got to a point, and again, I, I caveat all this by saying I love Governor Hogan. I thought he was, he was and is a fantastic governor, a fantastic leader, and I think a very good communicator. And I just think that he was... He was failed a little bit by his his underlings, specifically communicators on his staff and communicators at MDOT, you know, who did not understand the value of going out and communicating in real time with just frank truth about what the project was and wasn't. And, and I would submit that there are a lot of people out there who still don't really even know what the project is. Um, and what it'll do and when it'll start and, and impacts it will bring. Uh, it got to the point where, you know, here I was, I, I had done 21 years in the Navy, a majority of it as a communicator. I couldn't get singular tweets approved uh, by either the governor's communication staff or the MDOT PAO. And, and it was just ridiculous, a total, total failure to go out and, and present the audiences with the real facts in the interest of covering the ass, being, you know, being proper, making sure that everything was vetted properly. It's a tweet. It's a tweet that's talking about what the project is and isn't. Go out and empower your communicators to do their job, trust their expertise, and, and they'll deliver for you a solution. But if you don't trust the communicators, then, then it's a failure on the leadership level. And I guess that's what I'm saying is, I think that it was a failure from the Hogan administration from the jump. I hope it's not a failure in the end. Let's hope the traffic pattern sees some relief. I got my fingers crossed on this one. We shall, uh, we shall see. Uh, gentlemen, uh, we're going uh, to begin to wrap up Rearview Mirror here. We've got one more subject to talk about. And John, you mentioned it earlier. That is Kevin Durant. Uh, this past Monday evening in Toronto uh, with the Golden State Warriors down three games to one against the Toronto Raptors, Kevin Durant, who had been injured over a month ago with calf injury, decided to, to go back out there and, and try and help his team. 
for about 11 minutes, Kevin Durant was exactly who uh, he said he was. I'm Kevin Durant. You know who I am, right? I'm Kevin Durant. Knocking down threes and looking like his usual self uh, until around the 12-minute mark when he tore his Achilles tendon, uh, he had, which he had surgery for yesterday. Uh, we saw Bob Myers, director of basketball ops, in a very, very emotional um, post-game interview uh, saying that, uh, that he would take blame for the decision. But while everyone is discussing this left, right, up and down, Kevin Durant is not going to be playing basketball for at least uh, an, another year. And who knows if he will be the same Kevin Durant once he gets back. We could argue all day about whose decision it was or whether it was the right decision for him to go back on the court. Um, but let's just speak about the, uh, the heart of a player. Uh, and at the end of the day, isn't it the player who decides uh, if he wants to play? Um, as we saw with Kawhi Leonard last year. Um, does any, any, anyone want to jump on that and uh, offer up yeah. their thoughts? Um, well, my first question is, who is going to bring Kevin Durant uh, gas station sushi as he recovers <laughs> from his Achilles injury like Chris and I did for you? And, right. and I'm, telling, I'm telling you, audience, uh, Bashan Mann you know, suffered – a debilitating Achilles injury um, not too long ago too. And, and Dinfos, they just never got him back full, full strength. And, and that's what I'm saying is <laughs> waiting of, for the NBA. Is that's some truth people, to that. <laughs> people, people don't come back from this injury. But, yeah, I, I agree. I, I understand that people love wearing the Kevin Durant jersey. I understand that people love watching the player. Um, but you know what? There – there's a lot of there's a lot of validation that Kawhi Leonard is getting now, and and saying, you know what, this is this is a very transitory talent that we have. It can come and go. It can be snatched away. Uh, injury can befall us, and and so I'm going to go out and I'm going to get mine. Um, and and people vilify athletes for chasing the money or or chasing the contract or leaving their hometown team for a better free agent deal. Um, I have visions of Mike Messina leaving the Orioles to go to the Yankees, something I still haven't forgiven him for. But in the end, they, they've just they've just got to they've got to take care of their own. And and Kevin Durant, whether he's playing for the Knicks or the Clippers or the Lakers um, two years from now, which is when they'll see him again. You know, I, I, I hope he comes back somewhere close to where he was but that's that's no guarantee so um yeah they've got to take care of themselves it's not it's not for the fans it's not for anyone else but themselves and and again if you think if you think nba players care about what the fans think of them mm -hmm. let's let's look at what the toronto fans did when kevin durant went down with an injury you, you really want to talk good. about classless stuff like let's not talk about the women's soccer team let's talk about fans in toronto who cheered an injury now that, my friends, is bullshit. Yeah, yeah, agreed, agreed. Folks, listen, we took a look back, and when we return, we're going to deep dive. This is a special one for yours truly. Stay with us. You're listening to Three Seeds in a Pod. Provision Advisors, we prepare your team for the what-ifs you never thought you'd encounter. Let us help solve your toughest communication challenges and leave your team stronger and more capable for the opportunities that lie ahead. Folks, we're back, and it's time to deep dive. Now, last week, we introduced a new uh, feature to the deep dive segment where we would have a 
uh, feature an industry professional uh, that we would interview. And uh, right off the bat, we're going to deviate from that schedule just a, a little bit, uh, albeit for a, for a good reason. Uh, I promise we'll get back to that feature uh, as soon as we can. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I just wanted to take a, a little bit of time out to um, recognize the fact that the 14th of June, uh, yours truly, uh, Bashan Mann, is going to retire from the United States Navy uh, after 22 years. It was an incredible, incredible time. I could sit here and wax poetic about everything uh, that I was able to accomplish in those 22 years, but I want to use this time to actually talk about people considering uh, joining not just the Navy, but the military. I joined the Navy simply because I, I dropped out of college. I know people uh, across this land, uh, people before me, present uh, and in the future, did join the military, will join the military uh, for a myriad of reasons. Uh, one, simply just to serve their country. Uh, that's something that, that was was in them. Uh, maybe it's something that has, has gone through their family generation after generation. Um, and some people you'll find will join the military um, simply because that's the only way out of a particular situation that they're, that they're in. And perhaps they want to better themselves and give them opportunity. And, and all of those choices uh, are, are fantastic. I would ask any recruiter out there and anyone who's considering uh, the military as a, as a way of life or, or uh, something that they want to do in order to get them uh, a better opportunity, sit down with a recruiter, sit down with uh, parents, guardians, friends, someone that you know, uh, and offer the, the right information. Um, I feel uh, too many people can get lost in the sauce, um, get told um, maybe some misinformation about uh, what the military has to offer. Uh, if there is something, if you're, if you're a young student in high school right now or even in college, and there's something specifically that you want to do, um, chase after it. Do your homework. Do your research. Talk to people. Uh, figure out the engineering programs that are offered if you want to be an engineer. Uh, if you want to be an operator uh, and, and get into special forces, talk to people. Figure out the ASVAB scores that you need in order to do the job that you specifically want to do, whether it's fly planes, drive ships, drive submarines, uh, and what have you. Um, it is a wonderful opportunity if you make it so. Um, don't just think you can, um, you can join the military. Well, I mean, you can if you, if you want to just join the military and float through, uh, but you do yourself and you do this country uh, a better service if you actually apply yourself to whatever the job is that you desire to do and whatever outcome you want uh, on the end of it. Uh, it's worth the investment. Trust me on this one. Um, I, had the, I had the opportunity to join the Navy's uh, public affairs team, and I enlisted in the military. So at that time, I became a military journalist, um, having gone through the Defense Information School on the enlisted side, um, trained as a journalist, um, was able to apply that trade uh, through uh, various commands um, and doing a lot of editing and writing um, before I actually became an officer, uh, where I became a public affairs officer, uh, which I am retiring as now. Um, I feel like I have had uh, a great opportunity uh, to take part in this, uh, this dialogue, this conversation, this uh, job of, of journalism as public affairs officers uh, interact with 
leaders, we interact with uh, journalists out there, um, news correspondents, and we do the job of communicating to the American taxpayer, all right, and then, and then global citizens uh, writ large. Uh, it is a job that I cherished. It's a job that I enjoyed doing. Uh, there were there were stressful times. There were fun times, uh, and there were times where I got to meet people um, that I'm working with now. Uh, and you create bonds, you create friendships uh, that will last a lifetime. And that's um, that's something I just can't really put to words. Um, I had the opportunity to also work at some of the highest levels. Uh, of our Department of Defense. And I have to tell you folks that um, there are some really outstanding individuals, um, some not even wearing the uniform, some who are or military civilians uh, that are making sacrifices, that are putting themselves on the line uh, for the betterment of our country. Uh, and that's something that uh, I don't want to sound uh, too Pollyannish about, but we need people like that. It's, uh, it's what makes uh, this country run. Uh, it's what pushes us to be better. Uh, and I was glad to work side by side with those people. Um, and I hope that uh, in my retired status, uh, I will still be able to engage, still be able to be seen as a resource uh, as we work on three season a pod and as provision advisors to, to have a hand uh, in that cycle and to have a hand in uh, making things better uh, as we uh, as we continue uh, in our trade, and I'll close with this because uh, I know you folks are probably tired of listening to me. Um, President John F. Kennedy uh, once said at the United States Naval Academy back on August first, nineteen sixty-three, "Any man who may be asked in this country what he did to make his life worthwhile can respond with a good deal of pride and satisfaction: I served in the United States Navy." And that I did well. Thank you, folks. I appreciate it. At Provision Advisors, we specialize in strategic communication planning, execution, and coaching for senior level leaders and communicators dedicated to achieving success. We work together with your team to achieve favorable outcomes amid contentious or controversial issues which directly impact relationships and market identity. Welcome back to Three C's in a Pod with Provision Advisors. Let's look out on the horizon at what the next week may bring. Chris, you're up first. Hey, uh, Bash, for me, um, I am headed out on Friday. Uh, unfortunately, I will miss uh, your retirement ceremony, um, but I am headed out on Friday with uh, one of our clients, uh, the Defense and Aerospace Report, to Paris for the Paris Air Show. Very interested in looking at all of the exhibits, interacting with the industry reps that'll be there, and not only helping Bagamaradian and the team but also really looking at it as a, through a communication lens and a com communication opportunity and uh, look forward to coming back next week and uh, from Paris and talking about uh, some of the things that I've learned as each of these brands tries to distinguish themselves and make their audience understand what they're selling, but also to reach potential new buyers uh, for some of the latest and greatest in the aerospace industry. So more to follow from Paris. Bring me back, bring me back a beret and a croissant, please. <laughs> John, how about you? What are you looking at? Oh, well, I'll tell you what I'm looking at right at this very moment is a tanker burning in the Gulf of Oman. Um, so this is certainly something that's going to command not just military interest, but national interest uh, in the news. 
as we go forward. These are provocative acts. Uh, I'm reading on Twitter right now that it was possibly a torpedo uh, that struck one of these tankers in the Gulf of Oman, and there's video out there of it burning at sea. Um, this is a problem. Um, thank you, Captain Obvious. Uh, yeah, it, it's... It's a, it's a significant and provocative act um, in an area where there are already rising tensions, as we've talked about on this pod before with the Iranians. Um, so we have to see what, what happens here. Uh, I know that USS Bainbridge is uh, rendering aid right now. They have 12 mariners from the ship that was struck from the, uh, by the torpedo um, on board Bainbridge right now. And, and this is going to ramp up very fast. I know that the USS Abraham Lincoln was just in the area of Oman. Um, so, you know, as Bashan was talking about, you know, we have we have sailors, we have sailors in harm's way every day. And right now they're doing uh, their job um, for maritime security um, in a very, very difficult area of responsibility. And what I'm looking at in the horizon is to how these operations will be affected, how much our sailors will possibly be in harm's way, and what sort of second and third steps will take place um, in response to this, uh, to this very newsworthy attack. And, and then how everyone comes together and communicates calm uh, to ensure that you guys don't go to the gas pump tomorrow and pay four bucks uh, for a gallon of gas, because this is where this is going. Um, you know, these tankers aren't just bringing vegetable ghee and engine parts, although a lot of them do, um, in and out of the Gulf. They, they're they bringing you know, the, the lifeblood of these cars that were driving around on the Beltway in 270 and soul-crushing traffic. So keep an eye on this. Um, I think it's going to get I think it's going to get more sporty before it gets more calm. John, I want to jump in just uh, re real quick, because um, in addition to the great points that you just made, th th this is what the Navy does, right? I mean, we respond to, I say we, uh, they respond to crisis all over the world. Um, and they do it in a matter of minutes and hours. Um, and the fact that the USS Bainbridge was only hours away and can not only rescue uh, the, the mariners from that burning tanker, but can provide security and stability um, in an area that is rightfully shaken, I think is very important. So in addition to all of those points, I'm looking at the Navy to really um, take advantage of this and make sure that both our international audiences and our domestic audiences understand the value that the Navy provides in cases like this. It's not patting ourselves on the back. It's not strutting, um, but it, this is who we are. Um, and this is what we bring to the national and international security arena. And so I really hope that Navy leadership takes full advantage to show um, in real time uh, what's happening on the scene to put this in the larger security context and to really um, explain in graphic detail the value that a uh, Navy um, present around the world uh, provides uh, to the people of the United States. You're exactly right. It's not necessarily a Captain Phillips-like situation, um, but, but in, in, in a lot of ways, it's very similar. And, um, you know, looking to see what the Navy and Fifth Fleet does in order to get reporters access uh, and, and get them to tell this story. Uh, we know Gordon Lubold 
um, and Courtney Kuby, they were just out in the uh, Fifth Fleet AOR. Courtney did a, a great story uh, covering, um, you know, the CENTCOM commander talking about these tensions. Um, you know, let's let's get these reporters, you know, more and more access to this story, not necessarily the Bainbridge and the people they rescued today, but what they're doing each and every day to make sure that the that maritime security, um, you know, is is maintained. Well, and, and the last thing I'll say, and, and I'm sorry, I, I'm sort of uh, beating it a uh, flat cat here. The, the Navy narrative over the last several weeks ha has not been one to be proud of. Uh, we've had a, a war college uh, president sacked. Uh, there's been discussion of letting people back in the Navy that maybe shouldn't have been. There's been a seal on trial for you know war crimes. Um, this is an opportunity to kind of put all that uh, in proper perspective and really demonstrate the 99% of the, the greatness that the, the that Navy sailors provide, um, both from a communication and from a national security standpoint. So I, again, really hope that they're going to take advantage of the, the opportunity and the necessity to communicate this important role that they play in, in national and international security. Great points, gentlemen. Great points. Uh, we'll wrap it up with this. Um, gentlemen, discussion and fallout continues from When They See Us. This is the Netflix docuseries directed by Ava DuVernay. Uh, it has actually just been named the most watched uh, series on Netflix since it premiered on May 31st. Uh, gentlemen, this is the docuseries that speaks to the uh, rather infamous uh, Central Park jogger, a rapist from 1989. Uh, it is a, um, well, then and now, uh, it sort of captivated uh, not only just New York, uh, but surrounding areas, uh, leading people to, um, to make uh, salacious, uh, salacious commentary, even at, at the time one Donald Trump uh, commentary, uh, commentary, excuse me, on the um, uh, seeking the death penalty, took out a full page ad in the New York Times, seeking the death penalty uh, for five boys, Corey Wise, Antron McRae, Yusef Salam, Kevin Richardson, and Raymond uh, Santana. Uh, these individuals were wrongfully accused. Um, they were sentenced, uh, served time for upwards of 14 years in prison, uh, and were ultimately found um, uh, to be uh, not guilty and, and were exonerated uh, of, from this crime. Uh, after having served each of them uh, anywhere from six to 14 years in prison. Uh, the reason I'm bringing this up is because this, the fallout that I spoke of, uh, then Assistant District Attorney Linda Fairstein and Prosecutor Elizabeth Letterer, uh, each are um, at this point in the past week, two weeks, uh, have been either removed from their current board positions. Uh, Elizabeth Letterer will not be uh, returning to Columbia University where she was a professor uh, and the discussion uh, about the uh, about the docu series when they see us uh, and the um, the discussion uh, from the from this uh, from this movie uh, will continue to unfold and so I'm interested to see uh, what continues what conversation continues to take shape uh, in our community um, about this uh, about this horrific event that took place back in New York City in 1989 so uh, that's my on the horizon I encourage each of you. Uh, and all of our listeners to take some time. Uh, it is it is difficult to watch, but it was probably 
uh, I'm quite certain, more difficult to experience. That's When They See Us, uh, the Netflix docuseries directed by Ava DuVernay. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you for joining us here on Three Season Pod. I want you to have a great weekend. And until next week, be good, be safe, and be better than yesterday. Thank you for listening to Three Season a Pod. Have a great week.